Radio, Civil War Talk Radio. My name is Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University, and my guest today is John Marzlek, author of biographies of Civil War generals William T. Sherman and Henry Halleck, among many other books. We'll be back in just a moment with John Marzlek. to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint the shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University. Joining me today is John Marzlek, author of several important biographies of Civil War generals. How are you doing, John? Great, Jerry. How are things for you in Carolina today? Good. The weather's lovely, as it as it always is here, unless there's a hurricane. That's right. I was going to say we've got we've had, we've had nothing but rain here in Mississippi, but it's been a, just it's been a gorgeous day today. So great day to talk about the Civil War. Absolutely. <laughs> now here we are in North Carolina and Mississippi, but you and, and both of us uh, educated in the North, right? But uh, now in the South, and yet writing about Northern generals, your book on Sherman is one of the landmarks in the field, and I want to get back to that in a bit. But I thought we'd start talking about your current work on Henry Halleck. Sure. Uh, Halleck is somebody our listeners will know, those who are interested in the war certainly know who he was, but the person with a passing interest in the war might not know a great deal about this this figure. Uh, can you tell us something basic about him? Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah Henry Halleck is, is one of these... Uh, strange individuals that was very, very important during the war, and yet since that time uh, he has not really gotten much print. In fact, uh, uh, this book that I just uh, wrote, uh, his biography, is, is the, actually the first full biography uh, of, uh, of Halleck, and, and yet he was the uh, commanding general uh, during the Civil War longer than anybody else on either side of the war, longer than Grant, longer than Lee, certainly. 
Uh, he played a very important role in the war. He, uh, when Grant becomes um, commanding general, then Halleck stays on as uh, as chief of staff. Uh, uh, before this time, before the war, he's one of the wealthiest people in America, one of the major military theorists, writes important books on, on all sorts of topics, is a major land lawyer. He's a very significant person, even if there had not been a civil war, but yet he's not very well known because he was not particularly uh, successful as commanding general. Well, now, with the war, what was he doing when the war began? Okay, when the when the war began, he was out in uh, California, uh, and he was uh, a lawyer primarily, uh, one of the leading uh, land lawyers. Uh, and land law was very, very important in California because, as we know, uh, California comes into the United States as a result of the Mexican War, and decisions have to be made. Then what about uh, property owned under Mexican law? And what about claims by the new American authorities? And so someone who knew something about land law could make a fortune, and he did. He made an incredible amount of money uh, doing this kind of litigation. So he was doing that. And another interesting thing about him, he is the owner of what was the tallest building west of the Mississippi uh, into the 20th century. Uh, it's a building he himself uh, he himself built, a building that survived the uh, the big earthquake and lasted into the 1950s until, unfortunately, that uh, was knocked down for a parking lot. <laughs> and today, today you you can spot where it has his building was, which is kind of ironic. It's the Transamerica Tower. It was right on that on that spot, one of the real major buildings in San Francisco today. Well, so he had a, a varied career, and he must have attended West Point, too. He, he attended West Point, and he was third in his class, and then, of course, he got an engineering uh, uh, you know, commission in the Corps of Engineers and immediately uh, was sent to New York, and he, for example, worked on the site of the Statue of Liberty, that fort that, you know, sits, that the Statue of Liberty sits on, and Bedloe's Island was one that he, he helped construct. So... He was very much involved, and he was in the headquarters, and, I mean, he just did everything. He was he was in the Mexican Wars in California and was a, a very good small unit commander, interestingly enough. So with all this background, when the war begins in 1861, it, it, obviously he wants to return right. to the colors, and he's a logical choice for command. What was his first command? Yeah, well, actually, uh, Winfield Scott, who, as you know, was uh, commanding general when the war begins, wanted uh, Halleck to replace him. Uh, and but what happened was it took him so long to get from California to the east that in the meantime Lincoln appointed uh, McClellan, who had had some uh, obvious success in uh, in West Virginia. So Halleck goes out to uh, St. Louis, goes out to the uh, to the west, and is a very successful uh, commander there. In fact, uh, he is the the first general that produced real results uh, for the Union Army when McClellan is stuck. On the peninsula, for example, McClellan's forces now led, of course, by Grant and by Curtis and by others, but they're winning victory after victory in the West. And so Lincoln said, "Hey, this is the guy that's going to, you know, take care of the whole war and brings him to uh, Washington." I, I've done a little reading on the Army of the Ohio. Uh, yes, you have a very good book, in fact, that I think I gave a good review to one time. <laughs> well, you, you did, and I, I appreciate that. And certainly the. In the West, the Union had both the Army of the Ohio under Buell and uh, Grant's forces, and, and Pope's also, for that matter. And right. Halleck was supposed to coordinate all of them. Right, 
Right. And, How did uh, that work? Well, it it, it 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 worked. Well, it didn't work, and it worked. Uh, as you know, um, Buell and Halleck, uh, who in some ways are similar personalities, don't exactly get along. And, of course, they have separate commands uh, at first uh, until... Um, until Grant wins, actually wins at Fort Henry and Fort Donelson, and then uh, Lincoln appoints uh, Halleck commander over the entire Western Theater, and uh, then uh, all the armies, you know, are under 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 his control. But even then, he doesn't do a particularly good job of um, of coordination. Uh, you know, Shiloh being a good example where things don't exactly go the way, at least on the first day, the way uh, the Union Army wanted it to go. When people know something about Halleck, one of the things uh, that Civil War enthusiasts tend to remember is his, his conduct of the campaign after Shiloh when right. he leads the army down to Corinth. Right. And they go mighty slow. Mighty slow, yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I, I, in, in, in the biography, one of the things I, I get into is, you know, look at this. Why why is it so, uh, so slow? Certainly Grant wanted it to move faster and... and you know that was kind of an all-star uh, group of generals that Halleck had uh, with him, but there were two things I think uh, that you have to consider why he moved so slowly. Number one, he was not going to allow another Shiloh to take place. So every time they move, they dig in, unlike what happened at uh, Shiloh. And then secondly, uh, Halleck uh, is a great believer uh, in the old traditional way of fighting that you outmaneuver the other army and you don't really have to fight them and you just take that geographic objective, in this case uh, Corinth, and so when he wins Corinth, he takes Corinth, even though Beauregard sneaks away in that famous, uh, famous episode, Halleck is very happy about this because he's gotten what he wanted and didn't lose many soldiers. In fact, uh, his his soldiers began calling uh, Halleck old brains because he did such a brilliant job of, of winning this victory without having to have many of them die in the process. And so, understandably, that would be popular with the soldiers. Right. Right. Exactly. And so, and and the point was that that they their their idea was to to capture this particular place with these two major railroads crossing. Uh, at Corinth, so they captured this, and that was what they wanted. And the fact that Beauregard's army got away really was not significant, which tells you something, of course, how the war is going to change, because as the war goes on, then the destruction of uh, the opposing army becomes one of the major uh, concerns of, of the Union Army. That's right. You mentioned Beauregard slipping away in the, the famous incident. That, right. That's where he uh, brings the, the trains? The, right, the trains, yeah, bringing the trains in. And every time a train would come in, all, he'd have all the soldiers cheer and, of course, convinced uh, many, not all, uh, of the Union leadership that uh, that reinforcements were coming in. Well, what actually was happening was the army was being moved out. Uh, but, uh, uh, again, Halleck, being a careful kind of person he was, and with the memory of Shiloh, was not going to take a chance. And so he, he doesn't really act. Polk, uh, one, Pope wants to act. In fact, uh, pushes forward, uh, and instead of getting praise, uh, Halleck jumps all over him for not following orders and keeping the army massed together and moving, you know, efficiently. Hmm. So, so now Halleck has, has, supervised the, the triumph at, at Shiloh and then Corinth, and Lincoln calls him to Washington. Right. 
Now, he ought to be just an outstanding commander-in-chief and bring the war to an end in 1863. That's, exa- that's, right. that's what Lincoln certainly thought, and that's what... Uh, uh, you know, most uh, most Northerners thought certainly that uh, that here was this guy, this very successful uh, general uh, in the war up to that point, and very successful in his career. You know, before the war, this is just the guy to come and take control and bring this war to a, a quick conclusion. And what happens, however, of course, the very first thing that uh, that um, uh, Halleck has to deal with is the issue of McClellan on the peninsula, the peninsula campaign. And Lincoln said, look, you do whatever you think is right. If you think uh, McClellan should stay there and keep trying to get Richmond that way, fine. If you think he ought to be withdrawn, you withdraw him. But I just want to tell you something. No matter what you tell uh, McClellan, he's going to want more soldiers. He's going to want more troops. So be aware of that. And and this is really where um, I think McClellan, I mean, pardon me, Halleck, faces his first major major problem and does not come up to dealing with it. And and what I try to do in, in the book is try to understand basically what, what happened. What, what, why, the, why was this individual so successful before? Why is he so unsuccessful beginning with this particular uh, situation on the peninsula and then leading uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the war? Well, that, that, uh, we're all going to go out and buy your book immediately to find out that. Right. But, <laughs> exactly. But what's the short answer? What, what's wrong with Henry Halleck? Well, I think, um, and, and again, I know some, some uh, historians, some people are going to write reviews and they're going to jump all over me, but what I've, what I've tried to do is look at Halleck the person and look at two particular issues about him, his physical health and his personality. You know, his personality development, I guess, would be a better way of putting it. What was it about this guy that made him tick? And so what I did was I gathered all the information I could on his, uh, on all his physical illnesses and anytime he would mention something about, uh, you know, something about uh, a cold even or anything. I just listed all of these things. And then I also uh, kept up a kind of a chronicle of uh, his uh, personality development and his uh, his uh, uh, very well, you know, what we might call his mental health uh, situation. And so what I did was I, I got a couple consultants, a couple MDs, and a couple of uh, people in psychology, and said, "Look, take a look at this. And what what can you tell me about this guy?" And they each said the same thing as I'd expect them to say. Well, you know, it's hard to diagnose at a at a hundred years distance. So anything we tell you will be tentative. And I said, I understand that. I'm not I'm not asking you to do anything more than that. But in any case, they did this for me. And uh, it, briefly, um, he did have some serious uh, physical problems. Uh, uh, came to the conclusion that he he probably had hemochromatosis, which was it's an iron um, storage problem. You you store too much iron and it creates uh, heart problems and it creates kidney problems and it creates a, a lot of other uh, lassitude and other things. And then secondly, uh, I got into the whole question of his relationship with his with his father and with his mother and the, his reaction to what we might call authority figures. And I think taking all of these things together, I come to the conclusion that to understand why he acted the way he acted, you have to understand both his physical and his psychological makeup, and that's what I try to try to do in the in the book. It's extremely interesting. The uh, the hemochromatosis is the bulging eyes 
uh, a symptom of that by any chance? No, that's what I you know, that's what I thought too. Uh, uh, one of one of the MDs pointed uh, pointed this out, uh, and one of one of the, my MDs was a was a uh, ophthalmologist, and he said no, this this had nothing to do with it. But he had one of the great lines that will, I think will go down in all of, uh, all of history because one of the problems Halleck had, he called them piles. Uh, but, you know, we'd call them hemorrhoids today. And um, uh, this, this one physician said to me, he said, well, I don't, I don't think that uh, these hemorrhoids would affect his decision-making, but it sure would make him one mean, ornery SOB. Ah. <laughs> and that, ex- that could explain... You know, part of part of the kind of personality that he indeed uh, did have, but but it, it, he he simply could not make decisions. He he when, when he got into the war, he could not make those decisions, and so he came, he developed the philosophy of saying that the that the soldier, I mean, pardon me, the, the commander in the field has to make the decisions. I can't do that at this distance, which is fine. You might argue that's a legitimate position. But then when he had the opportunity, when Burnside, for example, begged him for advice, he simply could not do that. He would not take that responsibility because, again, I think of his psychological makeup. So now, so by 1863, he is in Washington as right. the nominal general-in-chief. Right. But he's not actually making any strategic decisions. He's deferring he's everything. Not, not, no. Again, not to the. In fact, one of the most interesting, interesting letters I found uh, about him, and that was kind of an interesting story in itself. Tracking down stuff on Hal. Like one of the reasons nobody had written on him before too, was there. You know, it's not the kind of information that that we thought was available. I found more than than was there. But uh, uh, he, um, he, he just. He just could not. He just could not make those decisions that 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 faced him, and as a result, he he just simply kind of tried to fade away. And one of the, as I said, one of the most interesting things I, I, I found was a letter that he writes to a friend when Grant takes over and he becomes chief of staff, and he said, "This is great. Now I don't have to make decisions anymore." And all I have to do is tell other people what Grant wants them to do. And he loved it. He was perfect in implementing somebody else's decision, but he couldn't make them himself. Well, that was uh, Lincoln described him as a first-rate clerk uh, as, as, as commander-in-chief. Did he not at one point? At one point he did, yeah. Lincoln really got very frustrated with him. And uh, the question then is, well, why did he keep him on? And I argue he kept him on because there was nobody else until Grant was ready in, in 64 to take over. And so Halleck did some good things. He organized well. I mean, he knew, he knew logistics as he, as he would from his, uh, his past life. So he was capable of doing some things, but he was not capable of providing that overall strategic military battlefield leadership. Well, we'll talk about more about Halleck and about some generals who did exercise that kind of leadership. Uh, in just a few minutes, we're going to take a break here. This is Jerry Prokopovich with John Marzalek on Civil War Talk Radio. 